You're listening to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition has been funded by a grant from the Hospital Saturday Fund. Is chronic pain a condition in its own right, or is it a byproduct, for want of a better word, of other conditions? Is it important to make these distinctions? Sir Michael Bond is a retired professor of psychological medicine. He's been an influential voice on the international stage in arguing that pain should be classified as a condition in its own right. Until very recent times, everybody, doctors included, regarded pain as a symptom of some disorder or other, one organ or an injury or whatever. Pain is just a symptom and it's extremely difficult to convince people that you may have an injury that recovers but you're left with persistent pain although there is now no tissue damage evident. But what we do know from neuroscience is that if pain is present for a certain period of time in some people there will be changes in the cells in the spinal cord that are permanent So although the tissues that were originally involved are not responding to injury anymore, the cells in the spinal cord are behaving as though they were. So we have pain as an illness in its own right is in fact a consequence of channels through which noxious stimuli pass not recovering. Well, that's interesting because... I've been aware of making this thing pain as a condition in its own right, but I thought that was a political act to get it taken more seriously. But you are saying that the injury has changed the body in a certain way. Indeed, that does happen. What difference does that make? Well, it means, generally speaking, that the doctor or doctors who examine the person who are not aware of this believe the patient is faking it or, for some reason or other, complaining of something that isn't really genuine not genuine there's nothing wrong how could it be genuine and yet it is genuine but the reason is because the damage is elsewhere and those who are not aware of these things don't know that so that's the reason I think but if you do know that and if other people know that and if it's accepted then why is there an argument well there isn't the same argument now that there was when people said pain was just a symptom. It took us a long time to persuade WHO that pain could be a disorder in its own right. And it's only in 2008, I think, that the Scottish government accepted that pain is a disorder in its own right, and even more recently in England. So accepting that pain can be a disorder in its own right is very new in the British Isles. It doesn't go much further back than that outside the British Isles. So it's a a concept which probably hasn't percolated through to quite a lot of the community yet. The implications, I guess, of all of us with persistent pain now having a disease could be quite enormous. I'm not sure it would be called a disease. It's a dysfunction of part of the nervous system, but it's not a disease in the sense of an infection or a direct injury. It's an alteration of function that's brought about by a stream of traffic 
which has now ceased. So you've got a differently functioning spinal cord than you had before this event occurred. But it's not, not a disease. We would regard it as, a, as an alteration in function, but it gives rise to this experience of it's called pain. For people living with pain, that's all semantics, disease yes. or dysfunction. Yes. Well, what I used to say to people was, uh, your original injury, the actual site, is no longer a site of damage. But things have changed in your nervous system such that you continue to feel pain. Since it's been recognised as a condition in its own right, what difference has that made? I think perhaps the difference is that the government now accepts that that is one of the causes of pain. And I suppose if it comes down to costs, it can be costed, as you might cost a broken leg, you know, this is the value we attach to that, whereas before we didn't attach any value to it because we didn't believe it existed in that form. I don't know. I suppose the cynic might say, and you know, I hope I'm not a cynic, but the fact that there is a cost to pain may have been one of the barriers for having it recognised as a condition in its own right. Well, that's a subtle point. I don't know. <laughs> you might be right. It certainly wouldn't have been the case at WHO. I think they just said, no, it can't be true, it's a, it's a symptom, it's always a symptom. There was a discourse going on between ISP and uh, WHO for quite a, a number of years about this topic. Uh, and, and IASP is the International Association for the Study, study of, of Pain. Pain. That's right, yes. That was founded in 1973. Whereas in Scotland, the formation of groups of people who are interested in pain and want to make changes in the conditions for pain patients is a much newer development. I mean, there have been pain clinics in Scotland. I remember going to a pain group meeting back in the late 1960s, and I had a pain service, inpatient pain rehab service, in the 1980s in Glasgow. But there wasn't a nationwide body that uh, pulled things together. The North British Pain Association came along 1988. That was Scotland and Northern England. And that did something to begin to pull things together. And it's in more recent times, and the pain concern came along later still, that there's a national movement, really, to give far better services to patients in pain in Scotland. But you were a pioneer in pain management services. Well, we had the, the first inpatient unit for rehabilitating people with chronic pain back in the uh, early 80s. That lasted for about 10 years. So yes, that, we were right in at the very beginning. But at that time, there wasn't anything happening elsewhere in Scotland. There were other pain clinics, outpatient clinics, but no inpatient facility. And the curious thing is, that the pain rehab unit was on a psychiatric ward in a general hospital. That's simply because of my position in the system. But it was regarded as a sort of slight oddity to have a pain rehab unit in a psychiatric ward. But that was very forward thinking for them. People might not have seen it. No. People might have judged it as you know, pain patients are psychiatric cases. But in today's thinking, it must have been a very forward thing. Well, I think the point was I didn't see them as psychiatric cases. 
those were the only beds I had access to. They didn't, for the most part, didn't have any form of mental illness. They had behavioural problems, they had chronic pain. There were three groups really. One group had pain which followed surgery of one kind or another and they hadn't come to terms with it. They just couldn't cope with it. We treated them mostly successfully. The second group did have a psychiatric disorder, usually a depressive illness, and treating their depressive illness got rid of their pain disorder. I mean, 40% of people with depressive illness have pain as a symptom of it, and we had people in whom the pain was far more obvious than the depression, so their doctors were treating them for pain when in fact what was needed was treatment for depression. And then the third group were people who had long-standing chronic pain, had seen every doctor under the sun, none of them had been able to do anything for them or explain what it was they had and they were very resistant to treatment of any description. Or in the fourth group were people who were habituated or addicted to powerful drugs, mostly dihydrocodeine, DF118, and we had a detox program for them, which was generally very successful too. It seems obvious to me now, I'm not a, an expert, I'm not a professional, I'm, uh-huh. a pati- I'm a patient, but it seems obvious that all those people you're talking about should have been treated as you were treating them with a psychological bent. And that's exactly what you were doing. That's what we were providing, yes. Again, it comes back to the problem of the education of doctors. We know that medical undergraduates, even now, get very little instruction in the nature of pain and its management, although it's one of the commonest symptoms that will be presented to them. Now, I may be demeaning them, but for them to make a decision to send a person directly to somebody like me, I think would be a step too far. They would almost certainly send them to a physician or a surgeon in the first instance. And they, after investigation, would send them to me, sometimes with a cryptic note, sometimes with no note at all, and the patient saying, well, they haven't told me what's wrong with me. They said, I should come and see you. The system wasn't geared to thinking in those terms. Given that mine was the only clinic or inpatient facility, perhaps it wasn't unexpected that they didn't think, firstly, of sending a patient to see me. Nowadays, they would. 30 years on since you had your ward, are you pleased with the progress pain management has taken? Uh, In general terms, yes. I think the British Pain Society, the North British Pain Association, the pain networks in Scotland in recent years have done a great deal to improve the lot for people who have acute or particularly chronic pain. And I am pleased in the sense that uh, it's taken time, but things have developed in the right direction, yes. That was Professor Sir Michael Bond. Well, staying with the pioneers or torchbearers for the management of chronic pain, the Walton Centre in Liverpool has been at the forefront in the battle against chronic pain since the 1960s. It's recognised for its expertise both nationally and internationally. Its clinical director of pain medicine is Dr Manohar Sharma, who shared some of his expertise on working within a multidisciplinary team at the British Pain Society 2014 annual scientific meeting. Chronic pain is a very complex uh, 
field, complex presentation. So we need different specialties, specialists who are involved in managing these complex pain problems. So typically we will have a psychologist who is trained in pain management issues. Uh, we'll have physiotherapy specialist. And then we'll have a pain specialist who typically may have an anesthetic background, but they may also be a general surgeon or they may be a spinal surgeon, neurosurgeon. So there are different disciplines, but they have uh, core skills in their own field, but they bring those skills together in a group so that the patient gets a one-stop shop and they get the all opinions in one go. Well, pain is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. It seems fairly obvious to me that all those people should get together to talk. Yes, they should get together to talk, but it doesn't happen as uniform across the board. There are some units in the country who are very good, very well linked, but equally there are other units who haven't uh, got that system up and running uh, for a variety of reasons. So what are you telling the delegates here? We were actually uh, telling the delegates uh, more about patients with chronic pain who really have a very complex chronic pain, uh, meaning that the pain, they may have a spinal pain, they may have had spinal operations, and those operations haven't helped the patient. They're still very disabled and psychologically very distressed and financially also very upset because of the consequences of chronic pain. So their lives are in a misery. So we have some specialized techniques, complex uh, invasive you know, methods to control pain, but we can't really introduce those methods just like one person deciding it. These are expensive and invasive treatments, so we need different disciplines like psychologists, physiotherapists, pain nurses, pain doctors, maybe surgeons, coming together and, and making sure that the patient has fully understood and they are fully taking part in the, their management so they get the best benefit out of it. What would be a typical discussion, if there is a typical discussion in a multidisciplinary team meeting? There are many treatment options for chronic pain patients and they're all fitted uh, around patients' expectations what they can or cannot do. Yeah. Some patients uh, may be, for example, needing a spinal implant to control the pain. They may not have many other issues, uh, psychological or behavioral issues. They may have a very small localized area of pain. And if they have very good understanding of what their pain problem is and what, uh, how it can be treated, so they may go straight away. They may just need an implant. Uh, but they still need to be seen by psychologists and physiotherapists and nurses to make sure that they have still understood what they're getting into so that they are able to manage it afterward. On the other hand, uh, same patient, but uh, different set of problems. They may be psychologically quite uh, disturbed and affected by it, that they have kind of, in a way, have lost the track a bit, and uh, it's overwhelming uh, for them. And then in those patients, if you just immediately do implant, that may actually uh, be counterproductive and might make the situation worse. So they need psychological treatments first to optimize. So that's the balance we have to strike, which way we go with the same patient. How important is it for the patient to know that they're being discussed and taken care of by this quite large team of different disciplines? I, th I think it's vital and I think it's, it, it, it gives them a sense of confidence and sense uh, that they are in a system that not one person can just say yes and no and just make a decision which could go either way, I think. When that decision is taken within a large team, it's a thorough and it's a rigorous process. And we all talk to each other in a discipline, making sure that we have 
ruled out any other possibilities, uh, you know, which could be applied to make them better before going to complex treatments, you know, which sometimes can have complications. So I think this is vital, and I think it's important we have uh, less resources. We need to make sure that we apply those uh, resources where they're most likely to give us benefit. So I think it's important from both perspectives, from patient perspective, from commissioner perspective, that we have the best possible decision from all perspectives. But from the patient perspective, and I am a patient, to feel that you're at the focus of everybody's attention, that you are the centre, rather than just a patient who comes in, has a 12-minute appointment and leaves believing that, well, that's done, that's sorted, one man is making that decision, uh, I am no part of it. Psychologically, that must be very valuable for him. Absolutely. I think, I think typically in our hospital in Liverpool, when patients come for a multidisciplinary assessment for themselves, we spend uh, at least an hour and a half uh, or even two hours. For one patient, they see psychologists, they see a physio- specialist physiotherapist, they see specialist nurses, and that process takes two hours. But that doesn't finish it. They then write their summary report, which then goes to their consultant in charge, who must have referred this patient into that process. Then that consultant will decide what to do, and that will be decided based on their reports. But also we will again meet the patient in the clinic and spend 20 minutes or so more, and then we'll put everything together. So there's a lot of attention. Uh, it's a lot of patient-centered, and uh, patients also have equal opportunity to kind of, you know, come back, oh, yes, I'll, I can do this, this, and that, but I, I don't think I can do that. So now how can we make progress? So we have to consider what they can or cannot do. So I think it's like a jigsaw. So and, the, and the patient is part of the team? Yes, they're part of the team. And, and I think it's, it's an evolving process, you know, when, when they're assessed by the team. And if they pick up an issue or patient tells them which they hadn't, uh, it hasn't come across to the consultant in initial consultation, that that issue is then taken further and and team will try to see how it can be optimized. For example, some patient, the team may say, well, you shouldn't have an implant now, but maybe you go on to this rehabilitation course. And that may be better at this stage, but it's a very delicate and, you know, very, very, it's, it's an important discussion, but it's introduced in a way that, you know, patients are able to understand the reasoning uh, behind it and then take part in it uh, and be fully involved. Shared decision-making. Absolutely, absolutely. It's spot on, yeah. At what stage do people with pain get to be referred to your multidisciplinary team? It varies widely. In UK, I think there's a huge variation. Typically, they wouldn't come to pain service initially. Initially, if some, for example, some patient has got a, uh, acute sciatica or they may go to orthopedics or, or spinal surgery, they have an operation. And then they are told typically that, yes, give it about a six to eight months, nine months to surgery to settle. So typically in a pain clinic, uh, if that patient doesn't do well after surgery, they may come in a pain clinic maybe after a year, onset of chronic pain. And that we will consider that to be early. It seems to me as a patient that a service like you offer in, in Liverpool is treated as a last resort when perhaps, tell me if I'm wrong, the earlier the patient sees you in his pain journey, the better chance of management. You're absolutely right. Earlier treatment of chronic pain makes it less intractable, make it also more likely to respond to treatments. And there is now a good evidence base being published and made available generally that chronic pain patients, if they're not treated early and well in time, it has an impact on their overall lifespan. And uh, this is a quite a strong statement to make. But 
it's not as simple a thing that chronic pain we can just let it go i think it has a huge impact on their overall health and the longevity of life so this is quite a serious discussion point that access to early treatment appropriate treatments is vital so what could we do about it is, is education the answer i think british pain society has worked very hard and uh, worked very hard with map of medicine to devise pain pathways and they have uh, had many sets of pathways now for different pain conditions for example spinal pain it's a huge problem back pain you know or or, or spinal pain is a huge problem and uh, they have now devised extensive pathways as a guidance for primary care secondary care and specialist pain management center as to how typically a patient with that condition should be managed so these are all available on the map of medicine you know, which gives a guidance to commissioners to primary care physicians and even general public should be able to you know access those pathways so the guidance is out there it's just the being aware of what is the guidance and then commissioners also then buying into and implementing a good practice guidance and these are evidence based guidance is large working party has contributed to pathways pain pathways so information is out there it's just being more aware and uptake of that pathway and implementation of those pathways by commissioner the walton center where you are is a gold standard in pain management absolutely and the reason for that is that we have different disciplines working together uh, neurosurgery spinal surgery psychology palliative medicine gynecology and pain consultants you know physiotherapy they all working together and this is unique uh, model where we we are able to work so closely together for the benefit of the patient and this has taken about 40 years to develop this collaboration that's why it's unique and it's not something which can be purchased it's the different disciplines who have a strong passion a common passion common goal that they want to treat for example cancer pain very well so different disciplines come together and provide rapid access to diagnosis rapid treatment and aftercare so i think that passion and motivation in the team uh, and then that develops uh, with their confidence in treatment they offer then they have their outcome uh, results outcome data from patient management so that then gives more confidence to the team so that has been happening that's why it takes you know 30 40 years for the team to come together and know each other and how they can come together to make best result for the patient that word passion speaks volumes absolutely i think we have members of my team and it doesn't matter whether it's a friday or saturday or sunday i can pick up a phone and if this person needs a neurosurgical operation to manage a cancer pain uh, my colleagues are so passionate they'll come on a sunday to come and see come and see patient and then operate on sunday or monday you know so that's how we feel for cancer pain or any other chronic pain management so we we take it very seriously these patients you know need to be given quick access and quick treatment if that's what is appropriate for that patient that was clinical director of pain medicine at the Walton Center in Liverpool Dr Manohar Sharma i just remind you of pain concerns usual words of caution that whilst we believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being he or she is the only person who knows you your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf now one of the members of the multidisciplinary team approach to pain management will be a physiotherapist eve jenner was a consultant physiotherapist in the chronic pain service in birmingham 
Now she works independently of the NHS and is an advisor to the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy. When you're looking at people who've got long-term pain, it's important that the approach is slightly different from what we sometimes call a medical model or a find-it-and-fix-it model. As you know, unfortunately, chronic pain, with people who have long-term pain, there often isn't a medical or a physiotherapy solution to take away their pain. So physiotherapists who work with people in chronic pain need to learn the skills and strategies to help people learn to understand their pain and learn what they can do to manage their pain effectively so they can get on with their lives. You see, most people will see a physio as somebody who inflicts pain on somebody. Yes, unfortunately that has sometimes been people's experience. But what we're really interested more in doing is helping people regain their fitness and their activity levels so that they can do the things they enjoy. That might be by giving specific exercises, but often it's about helping people understand how to manage their activities and manage things like sleep and also things like breathing and relaxation, so that they are able to keep their pain under control so that they can get on with their lives. So how would you help somebody manage their sleep? Well, sleep's really interesting because um, there are lots of things that we know that can disturb people's sleep, and people often think that it's the pain that's the main problem. And it is sometimes, but what we also know is there are lots of things people can do themselves to help their quality of sleep. And that might be things like making sure they've got the right sort of mattress and bedding to keep them at a comfortable temperature and in the best position. To understand that their environment's really important. So we know, for example, that having things like televisions and mobile phones or computers in, in bedrooms is really detrimental to sleep. And we also know that taking some activity during the day can help people sleep. And not taking cat naps, because often with people with chronic pain, they have poor sleep during the night and they try to catch up during the day. Although that can seem like a good plan, what it can mean is, is that you, you use up your sort of need for sleep during the day and then you find yourself awake at two o'clock in the morning. But you can work yourself up into quite a sweat by thinking about going to bed. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's one of the problems because the brain's very good at associating things. And if beds become a really uncomfortable and, and unpleasant place, then just thinking about going to bed can make sleep seem a really long way away. But there are techniques that people can, help, can do to, to help address that. From what you're saying, it seems to me that you're working as much with the mind as the body. Well, I think it's, it's really important that people understand the difference between hurt and harm because often when people start to exercise or start to move, they do get a few aches and pains and that can really cause a lot of concern. And physiotherapists can be very good at helping people to get the right level of activity for them and to understand that, that some soreness after exercise doesn't mean they've done any harm, but is just the normal um, system of when you start doing an activity after some time. How would a patient get referred to a specialist physiotherapist in chronic pain? 
most people get referred to physiotherapy through their, their GP. And there are physiotherapists working in all areas who have experience in chronic pain. Some people can self-refer to physio, but usually if you have a problem with long-term pain, you may need help from a multidisciplinary team with doctors and psychologists as well as physios. And in that case, say, you'd usually go through your GP or through a specialist pain consultant. But lots of physiotherapists in the community now are having experience with managing pain and can give people advice and support to help them learn to self-manage their problem. And there are lots of resources out there available as well, things like the Pain Toolkit and the Pain Management Plan, which is a development of the Pain Toolkit, which is to help people who've got, who need a bit more support and encouragement to learn how to manage their pain. But should GPs and commissioners really be looking to spend more money on physiotherapists? I absolutely think they should, yes. Certainly we know that in many parts of the country there are long, still long waits for specialist physiotherapy and for people to have specialist help with their long-term pain problem. That's physiotherapist Eve Jenner. Don't forget that you can download all the previous editions of Airing Pain or obtain CD copies direct from Pain Concern. If you'd like to put a question to Pain Concerns panel of experts or just make a comment about these programmes, then please do so via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter or pen and paper. All the contact details are at our website, which is painconcern.org.uk. Last words to Eve Jenner. Movement is medicine for people with chronic pain, so it's a really good idea to get into the habit of moving frequently because our bodies generally don't like to be in one position for too long. So even if you're sitting at a desk or watching television, it's a really good idea to remember to get up and stretch every 20 to 30 minutes and just change your position, give your body a bit of a break from its sitting or sitting down. You're looking at my static position. <laughs> I'm looking at your static position. I think a time for a stretch. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>